As we talk about the resurrection, I'll suggest to you that it has become a, something for me that I, I just uh, don't think we can get too much off. I, several years ago, decided to preach a series of lessons, or a lesson, and do a series of lessons. I called it an anchor for our life, the resurrection, and pointed out that that this is the thing that we can just always go back to. Uh, that you know, no matter what happens in our life, if we can't completely understand it, we can always go back and say, hey, this much I know. I know that Jesus was raised from the dead, and I know that if Jesus was raised from the dead, then he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, and if he's the Son of God, then there is of necessity a God, and then I can go on any further and show that his thoughts about the word was that it was inspired. And so I can anchor my life to that truth. And so it's important that we understand the resurrection and we know how important it is. Let me begin by just uh, reminding you that the resurrection is a part of the gospel. Two passages that are on your, your sheet, I think, is Mark 16, verses 1 through 9. Uh, quickly read that. It says, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, uh, Salome the, uh, brought spices that they might come and anoint him, talking about Jesus. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, Who shall roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right hand, and said, uh, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And so they go to tell the disciples that Jesus has been raised. Uh, you'd find similar recording in all of the gospel accounts. Look over also, if you would, to the book of 1 Corinthians in the 15th chapter. And beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. Now, I want you to notice, he says, I declare unto you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received in which you stand, by which also you're saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So here you have the resurrection in all of the gospel accounts, and then you have Paul saying that he preached the gospel, and part of what he preached was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we can believe, if we believe the gospel, we can believe in the resurrection. I want us to first of all, though, talk about uh, some theories about the resurrection of Jesus that are oftentimes put forth by those that are unbelievers. And I want to begin by suggesting to you there is what is called the conspiracy theory. Uh, that theory is, the, is that the disciples conspired to steal Jesus' body, and they claimed that he was arose or that he arose from the dead. So 
that theory says the disciples stole the body of Jesus. That is the only one of these theories that are actually mentioned in the scriptures by, by such. But if you will turn over in your Bibles to the book of Matthew in the 28th chapter, and this is after the resurrection and the, the guard that had been placed there to guard that body, make sure nobody stole it, uh, comes to the Jews, leaders of the Jews, to tell them that the body's missing. And so beginning in verse 12, it says, when they had assembled with the elders, that is those guards had assembled with the elders of the Jews, and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole away while we slept. And then if you look at verse 15, it says, so they took the money and did as they were instructed, saying, it is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. So the conspiracy theory says the body of Jesus was stolen. There are several reasons that that won't work. One, it ignores the high moral standards of, of Christians. Here Christians are claiming to be honest and upright and telling the truth, and how would that be if they in turn were telling a lie about the body of Jesus or they stole it and then said that he was raised from the dead? It would not morally fit in with it. But even more than that, perhaps, is that it's unbelievable. Uh, if the guards were there, why did they allow them to steal them? If they were asleep, like the guards claimed, then how did they know that it was the disciples that stole it? And furthermore, it just doesn't help the disciples to say that he was, that the body was stolen, or, or it doesn't help them to know that it was stolen, and then tell people that he was raised from the dead. There's nothing for them to gain out of that. Uh, furthermore, you find the disciples were surprised. Uh, they were amazed to hear that the body of Jesus was, was missing. And so why would that be if they were the ones that stole it? That's, they're just really good actors. And then you have the fact that the disciples never recanted their testimony. Even though they were threatened with death and and all kinds of persecutions, none of them came back and said, no, uh, Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead. You know, if they knew that he wasn't raised from the dead and then had nothing to gain by saying that he was, then why would they do it? And so this idea of just somebody making up the idea that, well, his body was stolen, it just doesn't work. Any thoughts or questions over that that particular theory? Uh, the second one is, uh, well, one more point on this is there were post-resurrection appearances. You not only had that the body was missing, but you had people seeing that Jesus alive after that also. So that uh, doesn't make sense that they stole the body and then people would see it. Uh, the second thing I want you to think about is the swoon theory. Uh, the swoon theory is a theory that says that Jesus only appeared to die, that he wasn't really dead. He was just wounded or whatever. And he went, therefore, into a coma, and for a few days later he came out of it and emerged from the tomb. Again, there are problems with that. One, it doesn't take into account the fact that Roman soldiers were guarding it. Now, how did even if Jesus came out, 
of the tomb. Those soldiers would have been there and dealt with him at that time. Uh, secondly, it doesn't take into account Jesus' suffering. Remember that he has a spear been stuck in his side. He's been uh, beaten. He's been crucified. Uh, then he goes through the burial process, and there's weights of, of spices and so forth on him. Uh, just not really reasonable to think that even if they put him in the tomb and he awakened, that he was going to move that stone and get out and appear in such a way that, that people would take him to be serious in any way. Uh, then you have the mistaken uh, tomb theory. Uh, this supposes that the empty tomb was merely the wrong tomb, uh, that when they went to look and see Jesus, they went to the wrong tomb. Again, there's a number of things that, that would disprove that. One, the women knew where the location of that tomb was. Look at what Mark says. It's, it's almost like uh, they knew what was going to be said and, and showed that it wasn't sensible to do this. But look at Luke, the 23rd chapter in verse 20, or verse 55. This is after the crucifixion of Jesus, and it says, uh, says, and the women, and he's talking about all the disciples of Jesus who had watched him crucified, saw him put in the tomb, says, then the women who come with him from Galilee followed after and they observed the tomb, uh, how his body was laid. So they knew exactly which tomb he was in. Not only do you have the women that knew where the tomb was, but they went there. Uh, when they came back and told the disciples that Jesus' body was missing, Peter and John ran to the tomb. Now, uh, did they just happen, or by happenstance, run to the same mislocation that the women had been to? Not very believable on that either. Then third, the real tomb and body could have been produced. You know, if, if somebody says, well, uh, the body is missing out of the tomb, and it's just the wrong tomb, well, go to the right tomb, get the body, and bring it out, and show people that the body of Jesus is still here. Uh, but none of them did that. And then it doesn't explain the post-resurrection appearances. If... He is in the tomb, and they just went to the wrong tomb. Then he's still in the tomb somewhere. And so how is it that you have him appearing to different people at different times uh, during the next 40 days? And so that doesn't work either. So you have also the hallucination theory. That theory states that the disciples didn't really see Jesus. They just thought that they did. And... Uh, there's answer to that. It doesn't explain the physical interaction. You don't really just reach out and touch a hallucination uh, like they did. And multiple people don't suffer the same hallucination like 500 in one place. And again, it doesn't ex explain the missing body. Uh, even if you say, okay, I saw a risen Savior. Well, if it's just a hallucination, that body is still in the tomb somewhere. So go to the tomb and show them that the body's still there. And so none of these theories really work uh, to explain Jesus' uh, resurrection. 
I will tell you that in recent times, I don't think people appeal to this as they used to. I think now the idea is just to deny it. Uh, the debate book I read about it, I guess, was by Flew and uh, gotten the name of the fellow Gary Hammond F. Mass, I think was the name of the fellow defending truth. Uh, but Flew was an atheist, and when they got into the debate and talked about the missing body, and Habermas, or the, the moderator asked Flew, said, how do you account for that? And he said, well, I've never seen a resurrection, therefore I don't believe in it. And that's what you get most of the time today. You're dealing with people that are just naturalists in their thought that unless you can duplicate it and show it to them, uh, they're not going to believe it. And because they didn't see it, uh, regardless of the evidences, they're not going to accept it. So you just come down and you ask the question, the resurrection, is it true or false? And then you have to remember the tomb was empty. How do you explain the empty tomb? As of yet, no one has come away with a, uh, a believable explanation other than the fact that he was raised from the dead. Now, again, the naturalist is not going to believe that. He's going to say there is no such thing as a resurrection, and so we can't do that. Uh, but anyone who knows God and knows of his power knows that that's no problem for him. Second, no one can find Jesus' body. Again, uh, you ought to be able to find the body if, if it wasn't raised. Uh, I remember reading even James. They think they found his body or his bones and so forth in times past. No one has claimed to have found the body of Jesus Christ or the leftover bones and no. all. Uh, Jesus himself appeared to over 500 people over a 40-day period. How do you account for that? Again, the explanation often given is, well, it's just a hallucination. But we saw, uh, according to what people believe and see at hallucinations, that doesn't fit. Uh, 500 people don't have the same hallucination. The power of the disciple was obvious in not only the preaching, but a miracle. Uh, it wasn't just that the apostles said uh, that Jesus was raised from the dead. They also were able to work miracles, which would substantiate that what they were saying is the truth. Uh, we've talked about miracles before. They are not per se the thing that proves Jesus was the Christ, other than the fact that it showed that God was with him when he claimed to be the Christ. And the apostles it showed that they were teaching and preaching the word of God because they could say these things and work miracles. God would not have allowed that had he not been working with them and saying those things. And then there's no forensic evidence available against the resurrection. Nobody's found uh, DNA that belonged to Jesus on a bone or something like that that would suggest that he was not raised. So the truth of the matter is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then you have fact again that witnesses never recounted their testimony. Uh, so here they are stressed with the idea of death or persecution and yet none of them would recant their, their story about Jesus being raised from the dead or that they had seen again. Uh, any thoughts or any questions over that? Yes, Tim. <clears throat> You also don't see any testimony of anybody coming up with any of these theories 
who lived in that day. Okay, good. So there's uh, nothing from Josephus, nothing written in historians. So all of those accounts, people that would have been arguing those things, should have come up then, not 2,000 years later. Okay, good point. That, that in the history books, the ones we do have, the ancient history, uh, they talk about Jesus. They talk about how that he was claimed to be raised from the dead and how the disciples believed it, but you don't have any of them giving testimony against it in that that time zone. So uh, a good point. All right. Any other thoughts? Okay, I want us to go from there to really looking at the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. And you've got some scriptures on your your paper that I want us to consider. Uh, the very first thing I want us to note is that it means that Jesus lives. Look at a couple of these scriptures. Look first of all to the book of Romans in the first chapter and verse 14, or excuse me, verse 4. Uh, and again, we've noted that Paul talked about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about it even in the book of Romans also and shows uh, the significance of it, but uh, Romans is not on your papers. Uh, let's go back to Luke. Wrong passage on that one. I'll skip one. Look at Luke, the 24th chapter. We're beginning in verse 1. It says, Now the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? I want you to notice that he says, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Uh, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of the sinful man and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Jesus had been telling them this. And so particularly, though, note, he says, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is affirming that Jesus is yet alive. Then look, if you would, to the book of Acts in the 25th chapter. This is just uh, Paul in one of his statements, 19, 25, 19. He says, but had, some had questions about him, about their own religions, and about certain Jesus who who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. So here's Paul saying, this Jesus is alive, uh, that he is not dead. And you talk about, again, evidences, just think about this is the man that persecuted Christians, and now he is affirming that Jesus is alive. And then look, if you would, in a passage that's not on your list, but look at Romans 5 and verse 9 and 10. It may be on your list. It's not on uh, PowerPoint, though. Romans 5 and verse 9 and 10, Paul says, Much more, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so you have death and life, 
and presumably put in order that though he was dead, he now is alive, and that's to do with our salvation and our living. I think particularly our hope of living. Uh, we are saved and we have the hope of being alive, of being resurrected because he was resurrected. I have thoughts or questions over uh, the fact that he is alive and what that living Savior means to us. Uh, the second thing, uh, Romans 1, 4, Acts 2, 25, Psalm 16, it is the crowning proof that Jesus is Lord and Christ. Now go back over to the book of Romans in the first chapter and notice what Paul says. Beginning in verse, uh, let's start even in verse 1. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection out from the dead. So Paul says you have him coming through the lineage of, of the prophecies and being born of the lineage of David. And secondly, you have him being resurrected to show that indeed he was the Son of God. You may remember even in the book of Matthew that Jesus dealt with the scribes and Pharisees one time. They said, show us a sign. And he said, there won't be a sign except for this, that uh, as, I'll get this right this time, Jonah was in the, the ground three days and three nights and, and came forth, so shall the Son of Man be in the earth three days and nights and then come forth. I think when I preached that, I probably put Jonah in the earth instead of in the whale or in the fish. I got it right this time, I think. Jonah was in the fish three days, three nights, and Jesus says the same proof that I was in the grave three days and three nights, and then I come forth just like Jonah was in the fish. And so that's the proof that Jesus is Lord and Christ on this occasion. Uh, this is what Peter used in the book of Acts in the second chapter when he preaches the first gospel sermon. Look back there, if you would, for a moment to verse 22. He says, Men and brethren, hear these words of Jesus of, a man of, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God unto you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So that's the first thing he says. Remember, Jesus worked miracles. People can't work miracles if they're not being approved by God. Uh, Nicodemus recognized that. We know that no man comes to do these things except God be with you. John tells us at the end of his book that this is why Jesus did it, that we might believe. And so he says, one, he did miracles. Then he says, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So that's his third point. One, he, was, he worked miracles. Two, he was crucified. Third, he was raised from the dead. And then you can read it, but he gives several passages that show in Old Testament passages that the Messiah was going to be raised from the dead. And so you get down to verse 37, he says, uh, or verse 36, Therefore let all the house assuredly or know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So he's taken this proof that Paul has talked about, it being the crowning proof, and he, he tells us this you know, that Jesus was the Christ because he was 
he was worked miracles, he was crucified, he was raised from the dead. And so uh, this is the proof, and one of the proofs, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Psalm 16.10 is a prophecy that says uh, that my soul shall not be left in Hades, nor my flesh see corruption. And that's talking about a resurrection. Uh, why didn't the soul stay in Hades? Because it's reunited with a, a raised body. And why doesn't the body see corruption? Because it's been raised. And so that's a prophecy that was made about the Messiah, and Peter saying Jesus fulfilled it. It's the one that was raised from the dead that would be the Messiah, and hence he is the Messiah, proven by that, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right, any thoughts or, or questions? Right, the third thing, look if you would to the book of 1 Corinthians in the 15th chapter, and verse 13, and notice that an essential, substantial part of the gospel's message that distinguishes Christianity from all other religions is that part about the resurrection. Um, I have preached a sermon in times past, why Christianity, why not other world religions? And I was going to speak again in February, and I thought, okay, I'll use that. But I sent several topics to the, to the church, and they chose dealing with God's divine providence over, over that. So I don't get to preach that again. But uh, the point is that all of these other religions that you see, Buddhist, Hindu, uh, Muslim, the reason they don't measure up to Christ, one, they're false, Christ is not, but the thing that proves it is the resurrection. Look again, if you would, to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, and we'll begin in verse 13, and Paul says on this occasion, he says, uh, there is no, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he, was ra that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. Uh, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, in this life only, we have hope in Christ. We are of all men most miserable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so all of these other religions, they don't have this. Uh, particularly talking about Muslims. They don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God and that he was raised from the dead. They doubt even that he was crucified. Uh, they think he was a, a prophet, but not as much of a prophet as Muhammad. But the scriptures tell us, here's where the difference between them and us. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, and the thing that proves he's the Christ is his resurrection. And this will always separate Christianity from all the other religions around us. Right, thoughts or questions on this part? So this is your proof of the surety of Christianity and all. Uh, 
Here's a statement by Newsweek. says, by any measure, the resurrection of Jesus is the most radical of Christian doctrines. His teaching, his compassion, even his martyred death, all find parallel in other stories and religious traditions, but on no other historical figure has the claim been made more persistently that God raised him from the dead. So just the affirmation of that. I'd uh, continue in 1 Corinthians. This is the hope and confidence for our resurrection. We read down through verse 20. Uh, look at 20 again. He says, but now as Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen to sleep. The first fruits is a fruit that promises more. And so what Paul's saying is that Christ is the first one to die and be raised from the dead. But with that, there's the promise that others will. And so then you continue on to read in verse 21. He says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Christ, or for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So again, here's the idea that we're going to die, we're going to be made alive. And what's our hope of being made alive? Well, the only hope that we really have is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, and the fact that God's word tells us this. But if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we have no reason to believe that such will happen. And so not only is, does it separate uh, Christianity from all other religions, it is our hope of our resurrection. Uh, we continue on. Uh, look at Acts 13 or 17, verse 31 and you see the assurance of judgment. Um, this is when Paul is standing before the people at Mars Hill and uh, preaching unto them. And part of what he preached to them was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go back to Acts 17, and we'll look at verse 31. You're... You're almost at the very end of his sermon at that time. And uh, he says, because he has appointed a day, talking about God and how God is superior and reigns and we're answerable to him, he says, and uh, he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. All of these passages that says you're going to die and then you're going to stand before God and give an account of your deeds, why do you believe that? Well, because God raised up Jesus. And if he raised up Jesus, he can raise us up. And if he has that kind of power and he says you're going to give an account to it, then you can have confidence in the fact that that's what's going to happen in the end. Look over for a moment, if you would, to the book of John and the uh, no, John five and twenty-eight or two. This is Jesus speaking when he was here on earth. He just talks about the fact that we shall be raised, and then according to that we will be judged. He, he doesn't talk so much about the judgment. He says, verse twenty-eight: Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming when those who are in the grave will hear his voice and come forth. 
those who have done good to a resurrection of life, those who have done evil to a resurrection of condemnation. So that includes the idea that there is a resurrection, but it goes beyond just the resurrection and states that some will be raised to life and some will be raised to condemnation, and that will be that judgment. And it's all based upon this idea that we are going to be uh, resurrected. I then I want to suggest to you it is a, a demonstration of the power of God. Look over, if you would, to the book of Ephesians in the first chapter. This is really Paul's praying for these people in the midst of, of his, as he writes. Uh, begin in verse 15. He says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord and Je Savior Jesus, or the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in saints, and what is, notice this one particularly, and, and what is the exceedingly greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Now, Paul is saying, I want you to, to understand and, and how great this revelation is to you and how great the, the inheritance is that is promised to us. But then he says, and I want you to know the power of God toward saints. And then he says, if you want to know how great that power is, think about Jesus, or God raising Jesus from the dead. I don't know if we stop to think about how much power it takes to raise somebody from the dead, uh, but it takes a lot of power. And Jesus says, or Paul says, Jesus has that, or God has that power, and he's demonstrated it by raising Christ, and he says now that same power is made available to us. Uh, look over to Ephesians, the third chapter. See if I can put my finger on it. Um, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That's talking about the power of God, that same power that raised up Jesus. And then if you look over to the book of Ephesians in the 10th chapter, in verse 10, or Ephesians 6 and 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And so he says, stand against the wiles of the devil, and the way we do it is that we stand in the power of God. And that power was demonstrated to us when we are in Christianity. And then let me suggest to you, it demonstrates for us the new life in Christ. Look at Romans 6, he talks about the old man of sin is buried, and then he's raised a new man in righteousness, and of course that's Christ was crucified, buried, and then raised a new life. Uh, and so that just illustrates for us what we have. Uh, the logical explanation, 
for the empty tomb is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus confirms that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and gives Christians a reason to hope, to believe in Christ, live faithfully, and know that Christ will appear a second time unto salvation, as Hebrews 9.28 says. Okay, uh, next week we'll be talking about the significance of the, re- or the significance of the ascension and life of Jesus afterwards. So hope you'll be here then.